The old pilot's plane tails. The dead stick. On the Airline Pilot Guy show, we often get questions about health issues that some believe might prevent them from becoming an airline pilot. We also hear of common prejudices displayed by the travelling public that would make us believe that they wouldn't want to fly with a pilot who wasn't completely healthy in every way. So, when I hear about a story like today's plain tale that has inspired someone to press on and succeed with his wish to become a professional pilot, I feel inspired to tell it. My thanks to Tom from Pittsburgh, who told me about an airline pilot who could see with only one eye, who performed such remarkable feat of flying skill, it gave Tom the confidence to succeed in his career, despite having a similar condition. Well done, Tom, and thank you. It was the afternoon of May the 24th in 1988, and Tacker Flight 110 was inbound to New Orleans. The Salvadorian aircraft, a Boeing 737-300, was inbound from Belize, having originally got airborne from El Salvador earlier in the day. It was a quiet flight, with plenty of room for the 38 passengers who were on board. The crew of seven included a senior Czech pilot who was on the jump seat, observing the performance of the aircraft that they were in. The 737 was almost brand new. The 1505th Boeing 737 manufactured in January that year and was acquired by Takaroni four months later. It had been in service with the airline for only two weeks and had some way to go before it would amass the same hours as its pilots. Captain Carlos Dardando was only 29 years old, but he had already amassed over 13,000 flight hours. Almost 11,000 of these hours were as pilot in command. Earlier in his career, Dardando had lost the sight in one eye when he was struck by crossfire when on a short flight to El Salvador, which had, at the time, been engaged in civil war. However, this injury didn't stop his career, which had begun when he was a child. He came from a flying family, which started with his grandfather, and it was his father who taught a young Carlos to fly, gaining his private pilot's license at only 16. By the time he graduated from high school, he had completed a course in aerobatics and he went to the United States to complete his professional pilot training. On returning to El Salvador in 1978, he started to work as a flight instructor and then as an aero taxi pilot before being taken on by Tacker as a flight engineer on the Electra L188 freighter. He progressed into the pilot's seat, becoming the youngest captain in the company when he took command of his first Boeing 737. Beside him in the cockpit that day was First Officer Lopez, also very experienced with more than 12,000 hours. The flight from Belize had gone well, but there were thunderstorms in the New Orleans International Airport forecast, and during the descent from 35,000 feet, the 737's radar began to show indications of moderate rain, shown as green and yellow returns on their displays. 
Now, Taka had a bit of a reputation for having a slightly blasé attitude to bad weather. Another pilot, who jump-seated regularly with them, mentioned to one captain, At my airline, we would go around all those red returns in the radar. His response was to explode in laughter. I had to play along. Those gringos are a bunch of sissies, he said. Now, there is nothing to suggest that Captain Dardenne took any unnecessary risks that day, and certainly the problems that occurred to his aircraft's engines were also thought to be a design problem. But regardless, he did fly into a less than favourable area of weather. The accident report stated that the crew noted green and yellow returns on their weather radar with some isolated red cells left and right of their intended path. However, radar returns can be misleading because of attenuation resulting from intervening heavy rain and the echo from a storm cell beyond might be completely masked. The commonly accepted advice is to avoid strong echoes by 10 miles below 20,000 feet and 20 miles above. As the 737 descended, it entered into cloud at around 30,000 feet and Lopez turned on the engine anti-ice and ignition systems. The anti-ice system gave protection, obviously from icing, and the continuous ignition system was supposed to immediately relight the engines should they suffer from any problems after ingesting rainwater. As they descended with the engines at idle, they started to pass in between the thunderstorms when they encountered heavy rain, hail and turbulence. Conditions worsened until, as they passed 16,500 feet, the unthinkable happened. Both engines flamed out. Flight 110 had just become a 40-ton glider. A jet engine is, in reality, a pretty simple device. The blades at the front of the engine compress air that is then passed into a series of chambers where fuel is added and ignited. The resulting expansion that departs the rear of the engine provides the motive power and along the way the hot burnt air turns turbines that, through shafts, drive the compressors in the front. The burning fuel-air mix within the combustor is usually self-sustaining, but throw enough water down the intake of an engine and it is possible to extinguish the flame and put the engine out of operation. If the amount of water is sufficient, even if the igniters are put on continuously, the engine won't relight until the aircraft reaches clear conditions. And so it was with Flight 110. Captain Dardano and his crew had done just about everything they could to prepare for the conditions they faced. Their passengers were strapped in, they had turned on the engine protection systems, and they had aimed into an apparently clear area between the thunderstorms. When the engines failed, they immediately started the auxiliary power unit, so that they could regain electrical power, and they attempted to restart the engines by windmilling them, but they refused to cooperate and remained dead. In the New Orleans Air Traffic Control Center, 
The controller working the eSIB was heard to say, understand both engines? Other controllers ran over to see what was going on and help out. We have a dead stick Boeing 737 40 miles east of the field in IFR weather. The controller was offering the TACA crew a Navy base about 10 miles away. One of the controllers called the Navy Tower and told them to change to runway 22 for an emergency arrival. The tower supervisor balked, but after receiving an F-bomb, he agreed. The trouble was that another large area of thunderstorms was building between TACA 110 and the airport, so the next choice was going to be New Orleans Lakefront Airport. It was about 13 miles west of the flight. They had already called Lakefront Tower and told them to suspend operations for an incoming emergency. Once again, the weather was going to be a problem. And then the flight crew reported that they wouldn't be able to make it. In the cockpit, the crew were working hard to get the engines relit. They had given up on windmill starts and were using the auxiliary power unit to start the CFM-56 engines, currently sitting uselessly beneath the wings. For a moment, they thought everything was going to be fine as both engines lit up, but when Carlo D'Arando advanced the throttles, the engines refused to accelerate. However, the engine temperatures rose until they exceeded limits and had to be throttled back again. That's when the controller offered up the possibility of landing on Interstate 10. New Orleans is surrounded by swamps, canals and various waterways filled with stumps, trees, snakes and alligators. There was not much solid land. There was, however, the interstate. Something the controllers knew that the pilots didn't was that by law, every five miles of interstate, there has to be a minimum of one mile of straight, unobstructed highway. They had called up the radar map showing the local roadways and were trying to see if they could identify a place to land. They all knew the local roads, interstates included. As they were discussing it, they heard the crews say, I don't believe we're going to be able to make it there, sir. We're at 2,000 feet and we're losing altitude. The only thing I do right now is make a 360 and I'll land over the water, sir. Captain Dardano rejected the interstate as he didn't think that he would reach, and besides, if it were full of cars, the carnage would be appalling should he land amongst them. He was running out of options when his controller came up with a final choice, Lake Pontchartrain. The lake is shallow and protected by a levee on the south shoreline, and the crew accepted that it might be their only safe option. The New Orleans controller called the Coast Guard station at the Navy base, and they scrambled a flight of rescue helicopters. As the aircraft approached the lake, the control room went quiet. Lakefront Airport was giving the cloud base a 1600, and the radar track that they were all staring at was approaching that height. As it descended, they started to lose data and then the aircraft seemed to make a hard turn. They all thought it had stalled and spun in. They waited, 
but there wasn't even an emergency locator transmitter signal. Coming out of the cloud, Dardano was lining up his aircraft for a water ditching when his first officer spotted a grassy strip beside a levee on his side of the aircraft and he pointed it out to his captain. The levee was a big, strong wall of concrete designed to keep the water at bay, but on top was a fairly long, flat area that looked just big enough to accommodate the crippled 737. However, on one side there was the open water of a large canal, and on the other a deep-water ditch. Unbeknown to anyone on board, the ground beside the levee was actually an old airfield. In the 40s, it was the site of the Michaud factory airfield that had produced parts for the Curtis Wright C-46 commando aircraft. By the 50s, the airfield was no longer depicted on maps, but with the start of the space race in the 60s, it became a facility for the design and development of the powerful Saturn booster rockets that would put man on the moon. The flat area of the facility that was once the busy airfield was generally intact, but the runway was no longer visible and there were buildings scattered around. The bank of the levee, however, looked a lot more inviting than the water. Calling for the gear, Captain Dardeno committed himself to the landing, but he realised he was too high to get onto the small strip of grass. He was going to overshoot. Thinking back to his days of flying light aircraft, he instinctively pushed the rudder hard and, dropping a wing, he side-slipped the aircraft to get rid of some height. When things looked better, he straightened up and positioned himself for the landing. All he had to do now was get over a high concrete wall and embankment that stood in his way. Without the advantage of binocular vision to help his depth perception, with skill that came from a combination of natural ability, good training and great instincts, Carlos Dardando lifted the nose to ease his aircraft over the obstacles and, clearing them only by a few feet, he resumed his approach to the grassy area he'd chosen. In the cabin... Sitting in his cabin jump seat was Louis Castella, a flight attendant. The landing was spectacular, he said in an interview. The plane landed so smoothly, there wasn't even a bit of bumping, a perfect landing. As they braked the machine to a halt on the flight deck, the pilots congratulated each other on a job well done. They had completed a forced landing without any apparent damage to the aircraft and all on board were safe and uninjured. Back in the New Orleans control room, everyone anxiously waited any news. The controller who had been working Taka 110 was blankly staring at his screen. Another had begun to quietly cry. Since Lakefront now had departing traffic, they were able to ask for a King Air that was getting airborne if they could remain at 1,500 feet below the cloud for a while to try and spot the 737. He was the first to see Taka 110 on the levee. They asked what it looked like and he replied, People are running like hell away from it. 
a controller recalled, I can't tell you how happy we all were. Captain Carlos Dando and his crew's actions showed me what the phrase heroic dedication really meant. I was 27 when this happened. I'd been an air traffic controller for about four years, radar certified for just over one year. From that day forward, my career would never be the same. The lessons I learned would serve me and aircraft in distress well until I retired. The 737 number November 75356 was given an engine change and in a remarkable story all of its own was then flown off the levee. It continued to provide many years of good service in the air for several airlines, and if you were a regular traveller with Southwest between 1995 and 2016, you might well have flown in it. Captain Dardando is still flying and regularly performs aerobatics at air shows throughout Central America. He remains a hero and an inspiration to all those who know his story. Finally, investigators determined that Flight 110 flew through a Level 4 thunderstorm, the worst being a Level 5, and that a double-engine flameout due to water ingestion occurred as a result of an encounter with very heavy rain and hail. A contributing cause was the inadequate design of the engine, and the FAA Water Ingestion Certification Standard, which did not reflect the waterfall rates that can be expected in moderate or higher intensity thunderstorms. CFM, the engine manufacturer, instated several modifications to overcome the deficiencies. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show Aviation Podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.